Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And here you go. It's the Duff McKagan joke of the week. Hey, Chris Jericho. How you doing, buddy? Uh, you get stuff calling. Uh, Windy, Seattle, right here in the wind. Uh, listen, uh, what do you call a, a vest? Uh, an alligator that wears a vest. What do you call an alligator that wears a vest? An investigator. Eyebrow comedy. Thank you very much. You guys, everybody be safe. Bye. <laughs> oh, that one was diabolically awful, but you got to love Duff. For bringing it every single Friday. Thank you, Duff, for making us laugh or groan, whatever it may be. And thanks to everyone who's been tuning into the Winnipeggers on Thursday nights. New episode came out last night at 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, you can see it on my Facebook page or my YouTube channel. It's all about the pre-internet days for Spewey and Ribo and myself. You hear about uh, how we navigated dating uh, back then, concerts, album buying, video games, even homework, all without smartphones uh, and computers or internet. And let's just say Dave got a lot of wrong numbers at the end of the night of bar hopping back in the day. So come hang with the Winnipeggers every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern on my Facebook page and my YouTube channel. Right now, Court Bauer is back on Talk is Jericho. He's got exciting news about the relaunch of Major League Wrestling, MLW, their new streaming deal with The Zone, their upcoming Opera Cup tournament event and what that has to do with Calgary and Stu Hart. The first round starts next week on the special Thanksgiving edition of MLW Fusion. Check it out at FUBU Sports and YouTube. All the details are at MLW.com. Court breaks down MLW's great roster of talent, including Davey Boy Smith Jr., Jacob Fatu, and Ross and Marshall Von Eric. And he talks about MJF, who got his start with MLW, a current Inner Circle member. Court was also a writer for WWE back in the mid-2000s. He was part of that Vince McMahon brain trust. He's sharing some great stories about some angles and matches that involved me at the time. You hear Court's side of the whole Mickey Rourke WWE appearance. Court's involvement in my surprise turn in 2007 and how and why Court got hired as a writer in the first place in 2005. It involves SmackDown Live, NBC's Friends, and Vince McMahon's goal at the time. Court also sheds some light on the WWE writer's room and creative process, Vince's love of dick and fart jokes, what it was like working closely with Vince on creative, and why Court feels scripted isn't the best approach for wrestling in general. So, a great conversation with MLW founder Court Bauer starts now on Talk is Jericho. I guess about, I don't know, about a year ago or so, Court Bauer came on Talk is Jericho. We had a lot of, of great things to talk about, not only about MLW, about all the involvement as well that you had in WWE when I was there. And it's always funny to hear some of these stories of things that I had no idea about that you can tell me, or sometimes I hear it on Bruce Pritchard's show. And so it was cool to, to, to have you back on, not just to talk about some of the stuff that we experienced together, but also about the relaunch of MLW as well. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, it's weird now when you're at WWE, for example, it felt like, you know, a year or seven years. I mean, it goes by fast, yet it feels like things just, you forget a lot of stuff and you fill in the gaps, you talk to them. Like, I had no recollection of that happening. Or, like, one of the things I was just uh, sharing offline was like the Mickey Rourke WrestleMania angle, which I wasn't in the company for, but I have another side of that story. I don't know if you've heard it about the concerns from the Mickey Rourke camp going into that night. Well, if you want to just jump right in. Okay, sure. So let me, let me tell you kind of the story on my end quickly as just as a setup, and then you can kind of go into what you're going to say. So I was doing this angle with Mickey Rourke that was originally supposed to start. Uh, it was supposed to lead to a match between Mickey and myself at WrestleMania. Unfortunately, he kind of let the cat out of the bag before Vince was ready, before his managers were ready, 
and they flipped out saying like, you know, you're up for an Oscar. You can't be in this lascivious wrestling world. <laughs> so they pulled him from the match and that was the WrestleMania where I ended up working with um, Steamboat and Jimmy Snuka and Greg Valentine, not Greg Valentine, uh, Roddy Piper. Yeah. So the night before Mickey Rourke was at the uh, stadium because they were able to get him to um, be a part of the match to do something afterwards. So that's kind of where it all started. But but what happened was is I went and did a, a, a Larry King show, and this was after they had already pulled out. And Vince said, like, see if you can kind of, I don't know, cajole him into doing the match. Like, be, you know, be a little bit stiff on him and see if we can, you know, convince him to do it. So I was a real asshole on the show. I called him a coward and just was really kind of running, running him through the ranks. And you could kind of see the steam blasting through his ears um, so he was not happy about it, which I didn't think he really took seriously. So when I showed up in Houston, he was there uh, the night before to go over what we were going to be doing. So that's kind of how the, the beginning of it was. So you take it over from your end. So, yeah. So I heard the story after it all went down. I was working with Frank Shamrock on a project for Showtime with uh, Bell- well, Strike Force then. And we were talking about our connections with wrestling and 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 stuff and for those that don't know frank was like a legendary ufc fighter in the 90s and has turned into a broadcaster nowadays uh and if you watch that wrestlemania you'll see frank shamrock next to mickey rourke which some people may have thought okay there's some sort of maybe there's something going to happen with frank and, and and jericho or something with like that or people just like who's this guy with mickey rourke that's very close to him the whole time and so <laughs> What Frank told me was he was very concerned that there was going to be a double cross. Mickey was concerned. Mickey was very concerned that you, uh, Vince and WWE were going to do something and, and somehow take advantage of him and put him in a position and get something at, you know, like humiliate him publicly or something like that and just double cross him. So he called up Frankie and just like, I want you to come with me to WrestleMania. I'll pay for everything. Just come on out, please. I want you to sit next to me just to make sure nothing happens. And Frank's like, I don't think there's anything that's going to happen. I think they're totally going to be cool. This is like, I don't think it's a thing, but I mean, <laughs> right. if you want me to go with you, I'm, I'm happy to do it. And he's like, yeah, no, please come. And so he just kept telling him, like, if anything goes down, man, I'm going to give you the sign. And then, you know, just got to help me take care of things in there. I'm like, it's kind of crazy when you look back that he was thinking this whole time that there was going to be a, a, an issue with trust on something like this. It's, I mean, even if he was in a match, I mean, I, I don't know. It's crazy. You know, this is when Mickey, um, it's funny cause he's, he's a very unique individual as, as I'll say, you know, as anybody who knows anything about his career, not that he's a great guy, but he lives by the beat of his own drum. And this was kind of the big comeback that he had. Remember he came out of the, out of the gates, just huge, with like nine and a half weeks and uh, the Pope of Greenwich Village. And then he kind of faded away. And then he got this chance to do the, the movie The Wrestler. And that kind of put him right back in, like we just said, Oscar contention. Yeah. So I think this time when his manager said, you better listen to what we say, he did it. But only for that one, two-week period. And then I think he just went off into Never Neverland again. Because, yeah, like when I showed up at that at, at, before the show, or sorry, the night before the show, He's standing in the ring with Frank Shamrock. And it's funny because Meltzer backs us up too. A lot of times when, when wrestlers like me tell a story, uh, not just like me, but when wrestlers tell a story, it's kind of embellished. But this is legit the truth. He had Frank Shamrock in the ring. He had some other like 
and, and Dave knows which guy is some Israeli guy who was like some he used to be like a like a not a bounty hunter, but like kind of like a mercenary. And he was in there and, and, and they're all UFC fighters. And he brought all these guys with him. There was three of them total to, to you know, protect them if there was a double cross. And all he was doing was getting in at the end of the match and, and knocking me out. <laughs> it, it's no. So on your side, you see these guys roll up with them. What what are you? How are you reading the situation? Well, so when I was walking to the ring, because it was a very long, it was a stadium. I think it was in Houston, so there's a really long rampway. And and one of our PR people was coming up and was like, "Oh, Mickey's Mickey's there, and he's really he's really pissed off at you." I said, "Why?" Oh, because he thinks what you said on Larry King was real. I said, "Well, did you tell him that's not the case?" She said, "No." I'm like, "What kind of a PR person are you?" So. <laughs> so I, I go in the ring because Flair had Flair and Mickey were tight, and Flair had told me that Mickey's Mickey's not happy. So I went in the ring, and he, you know, it was the first time I'd ever met him face to face. It's kind of a real fake kind of Hollywood hug, and it took me a while to kind of explain to him like what I was saying on Larry King. I was just saying it in character to try and build up the match. He's like, "No, that's not how it works. No, in boxing, you say that to somebody, that's that's a fight." And I said to him, Mickey, "You just you're up for an Oscar." for a movie in which you played a wrestler. You know how this is. And finally, after talking to him for a good five, 10 minutes, he finally got it. And he was like, he actually said, like, I can't believe that, you know, I'm up for an Oscar and you outacted me. You fooled me. And then he told me all these guys were here to attack you. If there was any type of double cross, I said, Mickey, I'm not freaking Goldberg, man. Like, you know, if there, if there's gonna be a double cross, you don't need four guys to take me out. I was saying Mickey Rourke had a background as a boxer. I mean, I think he was probably at least had uh, capable hands at the very least. I mean, I know he did celebrity boxing, but I think he actually did competitive. He did. He did. And he was actually telling me like, you know, I got to watch this punch brother when I want to swing it. And I said, just hit me. Like you're fine. You know, I've been, I've been, you know, punched by Mike Tyson. Like, you know, I've been punched by big show with a hand. That's this big. And he ended up just hitting him in the back of the head. So he didn't even really connect. But here's the best part, and, and we can segue this into your time working for WWE. How much does this sound like our former boss? Vince is down there, and we're going over the, the, the punch at the end, and finally when Mickey leaves with his, with his uh, entourage, I say to him, like, you know what was going to happen? Like, this was kind of – he brought these guys here to, to attack me if there was a fight. And he's like, those guys? And he, he points at – he goes, well, that guy? Even that guy? That guy's a midget. He's pointing at Shamrock. What's that midget going to do? He said, you, me, Finley, and Malenko will kick their asses. And I said, well, let me tell you this, Vince. If something breaks out, I'll take Mickey Rourke and you take the midget. He goes, you're damn right I will. <laughs> yeah, that sounds very consistent with, with Vince on those kind of things. And just, yeah, very, very consistent. It's funny because it's like talking about celebrities at WrestleMania as we create a theme for the podcast. Well, Donald Trump was there right. doing the angle of Vince. And one night we we're doing you know, some sort of in-ring deal with Trump and Vince. And it was cold because we wrote the lead up to WrestleMania. And Donald Trump has like that big winter jacket. And he's got like, you know, he's six foot four, something like that. Six foot three. He's kind of like a deceptively tall guy. He's also, he's also like, he's also thick too. He's one of those guys like he's got a big ass like he's just he's, he's a real blocky type guy so when you see him yeah, he is yeah. he is physically imposing so you know they're doing a promo and vince and him are going like face to face as the battle of billionaires thing goes down 
And afterwards, we're in the limo, and Vince is just livid. Like they get along great, but there's like that kindred spirit thing with them and everything. But yeah. he was—he felt like Donald had intentionally showed him up. He's like, "Did you see that? He was wearing that jacket. Uh, he was clearly his shoulder pads were stuffed. He was trying to look bigger than me. It's ridiculous." And he was like really hot about Trump trying to look bigger than him. And he just like <laughs> the next time out, I think Vince was probably like jacked and everything. Uh, he just would not have any of it. But it's funny too because. Vince, whenever he would work with a celebrity or a wrestler, would say, you know, just hit me. Like you were saying, just just go for it. Don't yeah. don't hesitate. Hit me. Don't don't make it look fake. Don't worry. I'm not going to get upset if you tag me. I I potato everyone all the time. Don't worry about it. Uh, he wanted it to rather it look real than it look not credible. Well, especially too, like I think a lot of times when you have kind of the guys who aren't used to the world, I want to say civilians, but they don't understand just you know how much you know punishment we really take. Like earlier this year when we had the little confrontation with Tyson, which May or may still happen. Who knows, really? But like they said, they said, what do you, Mike really wants to do something. What would you be up to? I said, whatever. Like, let's do a match. And you want to do a boxing match? I'll, I'll box Mike Tyson. How bad can I get beat up by Mike Tyson that's worse than, you know, taking stiff shots from all these guys that have been beaten up by over the years? So you can hit me and I'm, I'm fine. I'll be fine. And I, I remember when Big Show had that with, with Floyd Mayweather, he told Mayweather to hit him and Mayweather broke his nose. And show was like, you know, I've, I've had my nose broken by less. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's part of what happens in, in the business. And I think for people on the outside that come in, they're kind of like the biggest concern you have with the guys like from the UFC or something is like if they're going to actually be a little too hesitant, they don't have that killer instinct because they don't want to hurt you. And I, I right. had uh, guys in MMA and MLW and you have to remind them, it's like, no, you have to be you. And we're expecting it to look authentic. If you don't and you are soft and if there's light in your punches, the, it's, the, it's just the air is going to come out of the whole match. You, you can't. Right. You got to go in there. And it's better actually if you stiff a guy and there's some swelling than the opposite because then it builds yeah. you up in your mystique. And it's just like I think they're just terrified to hurt someone. It's funny too because, like I said, I mean you've you've been on before. I can't even remember when it was. If it was a year ago or two years, but kind of kind of refresh how long you worked for WWE for. Because, like you said, you were in kind of no pun intended the inner circle there as one of the one of the, the, the higher up writers for for a while, as far as I can recall. So I started in the spring of 2005, and then the summer of 2007, I gave notice and left. So in dog years, that's 14 years, but WWE, <laughs> that's two years. Um, and it was interesting because I came at a time when they had been stockpiling like some interesting names from Hollywood to come in there and be writers. They had run shows for Spike TV. They had done interesting things with interesting people, all walks of life from TV. And then they were kind of like, well, this has been kind of complicated in that they're guaranteeing these guys pretty pretty nice paydays, uh, but they're not really understanding wrestling. What we'd love is someone that has a background in wrestling, has done some stuff in TV that's young enough that you know, we had a guy on our team, a great guy, but he had, he literally had his, his credits included chips and 90210, not the new version, but the old version, which was great because I love that show. Right. But, you know, it's like they wanted something a little younger. So I had a unique situation because I had run the original form of MLW. I was only like 21, 22 at the time. And had gone from that to WWE. And, and MLW originally was supposed to be a feeder system for all Japan. Oh, wow. But yeah, that was set up. I, so I got into the business through the Samoans, Afa and Samu. And within you know six months, I became friends with their brother-in-law. 
uh, or Samu's brother-in-law, Gary Albright. Right. And so he was in all Japan with Doc. And so where we went from there was, it would be great to have like the next generation of all Japan come up and develop the, the US end through a development system. WWE was rumored to do that at the time. They were doing something in Memphis and then they eventually settled on Ohio. So I started doing that. And then Gary passed away. All Japan was sold and just MLW was reborn in a different way, just being a traditional independent after ECW and WCW and all these companies had just it was scorched earth after 2001. So right. that would set the table for me to go to WWE a few years later. Um, and it was interesting because I'd never been part of a wrestling creative team. And it was an interesting group. You know, you had Bruce Pritchard there. You had um, Ted DiBiase had just started at that moment in time. Michael Hayes was there. Uh, and then they tried it. They actually had a few wrestlers, legends kind of rotate in. What for like, I think we had for about 12 minutes, Terry uh, or Tully Blanchard. We had um, um, Greg Gagne. Uh, we had a bunch of different guys that would just rotate in and out. Jimmy Jam Garvin, who was a pilot, uh, took a holiday break and came in and did like three days. Like, yeah, no, this is not for me anymore. <laughs> and I remember everyone saying, I remember Jimmy Jam and thinking what he looked like in WCW in the early 90s or in world class in the like 80s. And he looked like a mini big show now. He looked just like big show, but a lot shorter, um, but a great guy. And it was interesting just being a part of the team and just seeing how that process works. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the creative team. I, I don't think right. that kind of process works but you don't know until you try it i guess but it became like a big fact because then every promotion had to have a creative team you had to have writers and you had to have all this stuff and it kind of wrestling kind of changed in a weird way very quickly you know it's funny because because when i when i got to wwe you know my my famous first promo with the rock when i interrupted him like there, there was no writers at that point even that was late 1999 um, and no rehearsals either. We, I mean, we, that was just all done. I mean, oh, you had it good then. <laughs> yeah. Like, like rock, rock and I, and, and Russo went over it in the back, but there was no going through it with, with, as, as, and as you know, a few years later, that became the norm, which is part of what my opinion of, of one of the issues there is everything's so overly scripted and overly processed. But, um, the reason why writers became a thing is when we started SmackDown, which was right after I got there, August of 99, Vince made it his motto that SmackDown was going to be bigger than Friends. The, the, the show Friends was, was you know, at, at its peak or, or, or still really huge. And he yeah. was like, you know, the, the bravado of Vince that we're going to beat because we're on the same uh, network or whatever it was. We're going to beat uh, – or maybe it wasn't the same network. We were competing. We're going to beat the Friends on Thursday. And his reasoning and, and idea and strategy was, well, Friends has writers. Then we need writers too. So – they just came in on mass. I mean, Brian Gewurz was one of the first and Tommy Blasha. They were great, but suddenly you went from like zero writers to 15 people in a room. So, and, and not really knowing exactly. And you could probably expand about, upon this, knowing who's doing what and what's really happening. What's the overall story arc. Like if you write for friends, you know, okay, the beginning of the season, Ross and Rachel aren't together at the end of the season. We're going to, we're going to try and put them together into be a big cliffhanger or something along those lines. But WWE doesn't work that way. No, no, and, and I think there's a few things. One's product knowledge, and and it's such a WWE's like this hybrid system. So they take aspects of TV, sports, and and showbiz, and they kind of create this kind of like WWE gumbo in their creative process. So it's really foreign to people that come from wrestling that were matchmakers or bookers, and then you have people that were like winning Emmys doing this on network TV, and it's kind of Greek to everyone. 
like the, the, the legends and, and people have been in there. Dusty Rhodes, who was with us, he, he had a, t- you know, he'd just take a piece of paper and just write down the matches and say, Hey, we're going to do a little something after this. We'll, we'll figure that out before, before we do the show later tonight. So it's a different process now that you're having to go in there and have this very scripted thing. And you're trying to make it as you get everyone together and everyone's on the same page. You write out all these grids, which is like the individual weeks of episode, the episodic TV that you're going to be doing for a month or two months. The problem with that process is Vince changes his mind or wrestler gets injured or something else happens right. or whatever. And so everything you plan every week gets wiped out. And so it's hard to long-term plan when you're trying to be that rigid. So if you're trying to be like more fluid in planning, which wrestling tends to be at its best, you can get a feel for the ebb and flow. And I think when you came in in the late nineties, that you had that ebb and flow, you can feel what's working. You can feel the crowd. You can riff and find your voice, right. you find your persona. You can fine tune it. You can evolve. When you got so rigid, you lost the ability to evolve and have that free flowing ability to break out with a promo because you're allotted two minutes. You're supposed to hit like six points. It's scripted for you. Have this big paragraph. You're reciting, you're rehearsing all day. Then you're doing staging for where you should stand and not stand. It's a lot to process. You need like a Google algorithm just to get through that. So I think that's that stifled a lot of guys from breaking out. It's just like, it's just not traditional. And the system in which it's built is kind of non-traditional. So you mentioned, but obviously we know both of the Vince likes to change stuff. And now it's basically, you know, from what you hear, it's the whole show on a Friday if they're filming that night at eight o'clock. Was it that? bad or, or that uh, tense back then no i mean there definitely there was a few times i remember like matt hardy maybe going out for a tag match with kennedy and they're literally going to the ring being told everything they're working on has totally changed they're doing a totally different match and the rest will give you the finish in the ring and so everything they had planned and mapped out was changing because vince decided to go longer with the match change the match everything and, you know, I give it to those guys and you really could see how they could freestyle and just pivot and do something totally different on a live SmackDown at that time when they had been kind of working through all the spots and the sequences to get there. And I think that's important, too. It's like one of those old qualities of wrestling is to have certain key things you want to get in the match, but not have it be interconnected sequences that then if you take it something out, you know, it, 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 all, it all falls apart and it's a house of cards. You kind of have to go with the ebb and flow. So would they be doing that just to, to mess with them or Vince wouldn't, wouldn't know what his finish wants to be or. I think Vince just was in a mood. I just said, no, nah, we're doing something different. And I just feel different yeah. about it right now. See we how they had react. A meeting, everyone signed up. He just felt like let's, I'm just going to call an audible and go in this direction now. And that's his right. You know, it's his right. Yeah. And, you know, running the company is it, it's sometimes it, you would change things and it would be better. Sometimes you change things and it would be, a, you know, more complicated coming out of it. And sometimes I think there'd be like this, oh, he's trying to send a message to someone or someone has he or whatever it is. And it's like, no, sometimes it's just a, a good idea or a bad idea. And has, I don't remember really there being too many instances where a guy was in the doghouse and there was just someone playing with him. Some of it really was just just bad ideas or good ideas out. or things that just didn't click and people just shrugging saying, what the hell is that? You know, <laughs> it, it's, it's, uh, it's weird. You know, it's, it's weird too because – you know, you want the talent to be engaged. You want them to be collaborating in theory and be a part of the process. I think you're going to get a much better out uh, end result. The product will be a lot better if they're involved and, and, and as much as they can be. And I think that's why you've stood out because you can see your creative DNA on how you've evolved over the years. You've had a lot to do with quarterbacking. 
Well, yeah, and, and like you said too, I also had the the hierarchy or the the experience, the seniority to be able to get away with it. But I think as far as just having your own ideas and be able to to, to contribute and really have Vince's ear to change things for the better. But I, I don't know um, as the years go on if if guys have that much. I'm not going to say it's balls, but you really have to stand up for yourself. And you have to be willing to, as Vince would say, pick the mountain that you want to die on. But, but if it's the one you want to pick, you can't back down. And it gets harder and harder for guys as, as the years go by. Yeah, I think there's this thing, too, because depending on when you enter the company, you know Vince at a different point. Like now it's like he's – there's like this – such a big myth about Vince McMahon, you know, the Walt Disney of wrestling or whatever you want to call him. So I think guys kind of just, it's hard for them to try to have that conversation. Um, right. It's also like, I remember when I was going to start WWE, I was trying to like kind of get a feel for what it was going to be like. And I remember asking George Steele's like, so what's Vince like? He goes, what Vince do you want to know about? There's a few. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's true because you would have to read, okay, I'm entering the room and this is the Vince I got. Is this the one I can sell him on bringing up a yep. few guys from developmental? Is this the one that wants to blow up everything? Is this the one that just wants to be just us to write down stuff like monkeys at a keyboard and tell you know, we're, we're basically glorified secretaries at that moment? What Vince do you have? It depends on that day. It depends on that moment. And if you get Vince in a vacuum, it's a totally different experience than when he's in a room with a bunch of people. It's just everything changes. Very dynamic guy. You're so right. There's a story in my book, I'll paraphrase it quickly, where I went in to give him a pitch, which I thought was great, involving me and Shawn Michaels and, and, and the Wyatt family. And I knew there's two there's two Vinces you don't want. Vince that's around somebody else, especially somebody that wants to try and you know show that his, you know, his, his dick is bigger than. And you don't want a hungry Vince. And I asked, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's the truth. You want him to like. We would always make sure he ate at the beginning of a meeting. Yeah, and he didn't want. You wanted to make sure his executive assistant was li literally with him, flanking him as he came and like. Thank God she's got the roast beef wrap because <laughs> yeah. if she didn't, we are all. Fucked. Yep, and that, and that's and that's exactly what happened. I even asked uh, Jimmy Kelly, who was the security guard, kind of his right hand man. He still might be, and I said, "Is he in there? Yes. Is he alone? Yes. Is he eaten? Yes." Great. So I'd go in there, but what I didn't know was there was another door on the other side of the, it was like where they do kind of the production meetings. Sometimes it's in a big conference room yeah. and there was a door on the other side. And when I came in about 20 seconds later, triple H came in and I was like, Oh no. And he goes, do you mind if Paul stays? And what am I supposed to say? Like, no, he's got to leave. So it's like, yeah, all right. And then he goes, Paul, can you get me that other steak? I'm still hungry. I'm like, <laughs> Now I'm really double whammied. You literally were in there with the tiger and hadn't been fed at steak. It was terrible. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then I told him this big, long, you know, intricate angle that I, like, I thought it was really good. And I've, I've, I've had some success with good angles in the past. And when he was done, he, when I was done, he just kept looking at his steak and he looks up at me and he goes, bad cow. Oh, <laughs> I said, what? He goes, bad cow. This steak is bad. It's a bad cow. And I was like, that's it. And he's like, what else you got? And I was like, I'm done. I'm out of here. <laughs> story. So Dusty was like, had this really incredible, very, very cinematic pitch. And he had been working on it for a few weeks. And it was like all these interconnected parts and people. And it would all converge with this big reveal. Dusty loved a big payoff reveal. And so he's getting ready. He's going to, this is the day he's going to pitch it. He goes out there and American Dream Dusty Rhodes is filibustering him and he's cutting like this incredibly long, incredibly compelling promo slash pitch slash just 
laying it all out there. I don't know how he could inhale and exhale as he was doing it. <laughs> Vince is sitting there and he's in his chair and he's just listening. And he's listening and he's listening and he's listening. And at the end, he just one eyebrow arcs and he goes, next. Oh. That was it. That was it. I went, oh, shit. Yeah. That was a tough day at the office. <laughs> that was a tough day at the office. But, you know, it's like, it would happen to anyone in that, you know, just, it's Vince, just, he, you know, it depends what Vince you're going to get on that day. Um, I've seen writers that are just reading a script and Vince will sit there and he'll act like he has an invisible sword and he'll just start putting it into his chest repeatedly. Yep. Um, you know, and the writer is totally oblivious to it. I've seen that in agent meetings, at least in the agent meeting, it's nice because you have a uh, studio audience and they'll start popping. Right, right. So the writer doesn't know because he's looking at the script. And then Vince is just sometimes that's the thing though. Vince has an audience or he's in with certain people, like he'll just all, all of a sudden become the class clown. Mm. He, he can be a very intense person, but then he'll be the class clown. Like, oh god. So we're not gonna get anything accomplished in this yeah. agent meeting. And then afterwards, all this shit just happens very quick because nothing got accomplished in the agent meeting. Yeah, Vince is still a big proponent of dick and fart jokes, that's for sure. Yes, yes, dick fart jokes. Um uh, used to be he liked peeing. Anytime you can get some sort of piss situation was good. Someone <laughs> peeing themselves, peeing their pants. Or peeing in, peeing in Regal's tea. Yeah. Oh, that was me. Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> you know, the squirt in the pants. Uh, those were always good times for Vince. And also anytime you can make Jerry Briscoe throw up uh, or almost throw up, which he accomplished a few times. He could do that just by farting really bad. Jerry. which he took once too far <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah that yeah he, he went all the way with that and uh he, he soiled himself i think and uh <laughs> i remember that yeah yeah and jerry's crying you know like vomiting <laughs> it's just like he can't handle it and then vince's music hits he's got to go out to the ring <laughs> he just gets up and he just no sells it and goes right out to the ring cuts a promo comes back and then i think he took our I don't remember because I wasn't there at this point. Um, someone, someone had told me, I think either he took off the pants or threatened to take off the pants and chase Briscoe around him. <laughs> uh, and that's, I mean, that's just the concept alone. I'm sure Briscoe was vomiting over, but you know, <laughs> Darius is one of the all time greats. Yeah, I don't think I would have gotten through WWE in my, my tour of duty without Jerry Briscoe from day one, just an incredibly kind, helpful guy that kind of, you know, he'd been there for so many years had helped you, Help you yeah. dodge bullets, learn a system that could be very unforgivable where people left and right looking to throw uh, daggers at you, as any competitive system can be sometimes, but that one in particular at that moment. But Jerry had seen it all, done it all, and he, you know, he was very comfortable in his position and was willing to help. Uh, and just, I, I can't say enough about the guy, just a great person. You mentioned earlier that you came in through, uh, through the Samoans and you mentioned Gary Albright. And the Gary Albright Memorial, which you, which you made a point of to, to mention, um, I remember that because I, I worked, it was in Allentown, Pennsylvania, home of the, all the Samoans. And we had a, a benefit show for Gary Albright, who I had met a few times in Japan, but I always had a, a minor connection because he was in Stampede Wrestling. So I wasn't there when he was there, but I knew the name and kind of followed him. He was one of Muck and Sing's, you know, yep. uh, evil minions. Thomasing, maybe. Gamma Singh, Muckin Singh, yeah, and he was he was called a Vulcan Singh, Vulcan Singh, something like that. Yes, Vulcan yes. Singh, yeah. So tell us about that show because you said there were some good stories about it. Like I said, I remember doing it. I remember working with with Eddie Guerrero on that show. Yeah. So for those who don't know, Gary was a hell of an amateur wrestler at Nebraska, and then 
found his way through Stampede, and from there, hit over to uh, Japan. Big shooter slash wrestler for UWFI, which was a pretty cool concept in its day, and then moved over to All Japan. And uh, just a hell of a nice guy. And I don't know if you're around him when he was uh, on top or in Japan, but he was a maniac from what I was told. He would say it too. But if Doc Death said you were a maniac, you were probably a maniac. <laughs> and so, you know, he was he was just a one-of-a-kind guy, big-ass dude, just intimidating guy yeah. to throw suplexes like no one's business. Um, but there, were, there was one person he was scared of, and that was his, his father-in-law who happened to be off of the Wild Samoan. And uh, I remember sitting there awkwardly in, in Afa's living room and Gary would have to literally have like a six pack of beer before he got in the room because he was just so like freaked about being around Afa. Because Afa and Sika back in the day, man, were the real deal. They're gentle guys, man. They're good guys. But back in the day, they were the real deal. Well, it's, 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 it's the classic Samoan where they're all really nice, friendly. They're all great workers. But when they drink, they all go insane. Yeah, you got you, you, you don't you want to be on their side in a fight. You yeah. definitely want to be on their side, and you're in great shape, man. You're on the yeah. you're going to win that one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you know, and you know, hey, Appa had love tattooed on his fingers. How bad of a guy can he be, right? <laughs> I don't know. What was on the other hand, but on one hand, it said look. But yeah, no. So uh, fast forward to I think it was April 2000, and I was uh, still coming up. I was I was booking the uh, the Samoans little like local wrestling shows. And we're, we're playing this memorial show. And I remember them saying, hey, so WWE's going to, they, they, they've offered to participate in the show. And, you know, it was on a volunteer basis. And, and Eddie and, and you had volunteered to come in along with Rikishi and a few others, Road Dog, I believe. And it was a pretty cool thing. And I just remember, you know, we also had All Japan on that card. We had uh, Mossman versus Johnny Smith, who was an incredible wrestler. Yeah. Like the guy that people should really go out of their way to check out. Like if you like Fit Finley and you like the, the Bulldogs, this guy is right yeah, there. He, he just he just slipped through the cracks, or maybe he just wanted to work in Japan. But he had a great personality too. He could have done it with the right character. He could have really done some damage in WWF and WCW for sure. Yeah, it was a weird thing with him because I remember asking him about it because he stayed with me for the, the the show, and I was like, man, you know, you're you you're he's he could have been there like with Re Regal, really, yeah, could've. yeah, yeah. Uh, and he had done some ECW shots, but All Japan was just always there and always the constant for him, so he just stayed with him. And then there, yeah. the ownership changed and everything went to hell. And I guess now I think he's a police officer yeah. out in Calgary. Yeah, he is. But awesome, awesome, awesome guy, uh, just smooth as silk. And so he, they, so he had an all Japan match on the show. And then I remember thinking, Oh, I get to book Eddie and Jericho. Oh my God. I'm thinking to myself this. <laughs> hell yeah. All right, here we go. Cause I'm trying to get into WWE at this moment in time. So I'm like, well, I'm going to impress them. I had all these ideas. And then you guys roll up. And I think Kevin Kelly was there on behalf of the office. And I'm like, and then like Sam was like, Hey, no man, you, you, you just print out the car. We're cool with this. <laughs> I said, all right. I'll hit that print button, but I, can I get credit for that match? If it's good. Uh, but you guys had a hell of a match and it was at the old ag hall where ECW had a lot of shows and Vince used to tape in the seventies yeah. and eighties, I guess, you know, it's, it's literally an agricultural hall. It's like a, where they had, would house cows and stuff like that. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it's definitely got a funky vibe, but, uh, you guys had a hell of a match and just to think of that match and, you know, that could have been easily, you know, just an easy night, but you guys put on a hell of a show for all those fans and for the Anuai family and it forever impressed me. And I have an appreciation and an affinity for you guys for what you did that night. That was 
a really good, cool moment. Everyone donated their time. You could, you could have been home. You, you, you didn't. You were, you were there. You could have been with your family. You were, you were on the road an extra night to help these guys out. And uh, you, you guys killed it that night. It was an amazing match. I, I don't know if it's available on video, but it's a really awesome match. I, I remember even, um, uh, I think at the end of the night, I ended up dancing with Too Cool and 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 uh, and, uh, and Junior. <laughs> I think there was a time when a lot of shows ended with that for a period. That was just the thing that happened. <laughs> uh, and that I mean, people think that of that Rikishi angle. And I remember that angle was originally a lot of people thought it was punishment in the family. They were like, man, they're, they're humiliating him. They're giving him this thing. They're trying to embarrass him. And he got that over. I mean, people look yeah. back. Cause that could have, that could have gone really bad. That dude killed it. Just, you know, look at Goldust and how he took a gimmick. A lot of people thought absolutely another guy that really turned just because pure talent will just took it to the next level. Yeah. And open to do it too, you know, open to try it. Cause he had already been through like five or six incarnations of, of characters as it was. So, you know, to, to do, to do the, the Rikishi thing was, was a big deal for him. So uh, as we're talking more about, and we're going to talk about the MLW relaunch, which I want to really get into as well, but we're talking about some of the stuff that, you know, that I might not know and reinventing and, 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 you know, changing characters. So when I came back to WWE in 2007, the idea was I wanted it to be kind of, um, kind of a secret, you know, tried something different of like, uh, instead of just saying Jericho's back, do like some codes and, you know, leave some clues as to who it's going to be. And um, tell me a little bit about, about that from your end uh, and how, how it was pitched to you and how you, who you were involved. So, so I had, by the time you arrived, I was heading out. Uh, right. Just like I think you left in the summer of 05. I was just starting, so we yes. didn't have much of a window together. But when I was there, there was a time where we had just closed a deal with Brett to do the DVD anthology series. And it was a big deal. And Brett was, at that moment in time, very small window of time, was very much into the idea of doing a match with Vince at WrestleMania uh in chicago wrestlemania 22 and so that was then gonna like turn to other things because brett wasn't gonna wrestle regularly it was just a special attraction right. so they were trying to find ways to take us to the house shows how to take this on tv and just you know and, and also at the time usa wanted more mcmahon they wanted a new fresh take on the mcmahon family and so the idea was you would have brett and the Hart foundation and the new generation which would have been uh harry smith uh, Tyson Kidd, Natty, and so on. I think Jim Nyhart was going to even come in for it. Mm-hmm. And they would take on Vince, Shane, Hunter, and 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 uh, Sean's and Sean and his students, which uh, were Brian Kendrick, uh, Paul London, and he wasn't signed at the time, but Daniel Bryan. Mm-hmm. So he had this really cool multi generational thing that could bring in. A, we needed new talent. We were starved for young talented guys. So we're going to bring all these guys. And, and bring them into the system. And it was a really interesting idea. So one of the ideas to how you could roll it out was going to be kind of start doing a viral campaign. Uh, at the time, uh, Nine Inch Nails had done an incredible activation for their new album at the time, Year, uh, year Zero. And they had this like treasure hunt where it was online, it was very immersive, and it involved 
these like little like cool codes and stuff where you'd find all these, you kind of go down the rabbit hole and ultimately yeah. you could find yourself in a small little like concert with 50 people. And then it gets like raided by people and they run out. And it was like the coolest at the time marketing I had seen. And also you had Dark Knight, the Nolan series, which had this cool concept based around the Joker. Where people were like doing all this stuff and figuring out codes and then get like a cake sent to them with the joke from the Joker and they'll have something in there, some sort of promotional material. So I saw this, I'm like, oh, this is so perfect for wrestling and the unlimited budget of WWE. Let's <laughs> do this for the hearts. And, and so I pitched this thing. Uh, I didn't get a quick next from Vince. He, they were into it for a little bit. And then I left. And I was told like they're going to incorporate some of this because some of the stuff I wanted to do was like uh, codes and messages on video, but also at house shows, I wanted there to be like thumb drives or jump drives where you could get something like a video file that would play a message or something like they were invading. Yeah. And so I don't know if it's one of those things where save us, which was awesome was just, we were all in the same influenced by the same stuff going on in pop culture and music or just, they took a little bit of that or whatever, but I thought it was interesting because I mean, that to me is such a cool thing to the, the coolest thing is building anticipation for a big match or an arrival. And you you were the king of that in, in 99. And since then I've done it over and over again. Yeah. And it's interesting because that's kind of what I wanted to do. And I, I like, like I said, I, I know I was working quite extensively with Adam Panucci at the time who obviously is the kind of the, the graphics guy and, you know, edits together the, the, the entrance videos and kind of, it was, I can't, I can't remember if that idea was pitched to me or if I pitched it, but I knew I was up for something along those lines. And it's funny too, because the only thing about that was it worked so well, but Vince kept pushing it back as far as the reveal. And it was about a month too long because there was a, there was a pay-per-view in Chicago. It was kind of, um, somebody got hurt or somebody had to be replaced and he said something like, you know, because you know who it's going to be. And everyone started chanting Jericho or Y2J. And he's like, not that guy. And then I think he got mad about that and just said, it, push him back another month. Because I was like, it's too long. Like, we're running out of ideas. There's only so many things you can do and so many clues. And, and finally, you know, it, it was a good idea and it was really cool. But I just think it kind of just went on a little bit too long as a result, you know? It's, it's, yes, it's, it's a feeling thing. And sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. It just depends. Yeah. You know, it, it's the other weird thing we were starting to experiment then was um, Taboo Tuesday, which was Cyber Sunday at one point. Were you involved with any of those? I can't remember. I was in the very first one. Uh, and the, the, the claim to fame of that one is everybody had like, okay, Jericho versus Court in a street fight, cage match, or, you know, a uh, hardcore match. So they're all kind of similar. I was the only one that was Jericho versus one of these 15 opponents for the Intercontinental title. Oh. Uh. And they wouldn't tell me who the top three were. I'm like, just tell me. Like, nope, it's a total shoot. Like, you're so you're working me. Like, I'm the guy in the match. And I thought so. I had to go to every single guy and say, what's your finish and what's your favorite move. And then some other guys, like if his Christian was on there, said, if, if you get picked, thank goodness, just call it. Batista, kind of the same. And Shelton Benjamin, I thought those are the three. I thought ended up being Shelton was the winner. Uh, and they they called the finish to us when Shelton got in the ring. So I called a whole 15-minute match, including the finish, which was a lot of fun. But I'm like, why would you work me? Like, gives a shit. Here's the funny story. I asked that question once because I was curious. And I was like, why can't we? Because this is we were going from the creative end. It's like, it's a, it was a massive process. You had like plan A, plan B, plan C. You want things from a creative perspective to lean right. heavily in one direction, the favorable outcome. It was an absolute shoot. The numbers were the numbers. Whatever happened, happened. And so – 
the reason for that was, and I, I was I was surprised it made sense. Fraud. Legally, they would have committed fraud had they done that. Right. Because even though it's a sweepstakes thing, it, it, there's rules in various states. They had to be above reproach. It had to be on the up and up. So that's why everyone's like, "This is killing us. Why are we doing this?" It's because. It had to be that way, even though it's it's a work, well, I, everything. It's- I understood that, but I said, like, in my case, just tell me who the top three are, the top five are, just so I can uh, – it's like, nope, we're not telling you a thing. So I guess in one way it's a credit that they trusted me, but in the other way I was just like, there's 15 guys here. I don't even know – talking about Anna Wise, freaking uh, uh, Rosie, Matt was one of the guys. It's like I never been in the ring with Matt – ever with Rosie like you know what do you what do you do like three minute warning stuff still like I don't know what the hell's going on <laughs> I mean that was weird too because I remember we would design things where it's like well regardless of the outcome this is what's going to happen and so when you do that it's it's kind of weird right because then it's like h- how do you work that because right. it's going to be flat for some people I mean there's just no there's no two ways of, around it it's going to be flat no, yeah, exactly. And then that's exactly, I mean, it was, it was an interesting experiment. I think they did it twice and I think it's probably for the best that it, uh, you know, is yeah, done at this point, you know? No. I mean, it, 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 I mean, I get what they were going for. And it was cool to try something new. The, I mean, Vince went through a period where every pay-per-view was themed out and I, I yeah. get why, but uh, it was, it was too much. Yeah. It was way too much. So when we're talking about the, uh, the MLW uh, relaunch, which we'll get into. I was just looking at your roster and just seeing all of these, these, these great names that you have. Um, but something that you mentioned that I, I want to just talk about quickly is, is one of your greatest names that started with you. And of course the newest member of the inner circle, MJF. Uh, tell us a little bit about, about how you found him and, and, and the development that he kind of uh, uh, enjoyed during his time with you. So yeah, he was a day one guy for us. Right. We, we restarted the league in 2017 and, uh, my right-hand man, uh, Jared St. Laurent, had seen him on a local show in Florida, of all places. He's from mm-hmm. the Northeast, but he just was getting as much experience as he could at the time. And he had been recruiting and looking at talent for a while. And he goes, this, this kid's going to be huge. He's just got it. He's got everything. He can talk. He can go. He has a real good sense of psychology. Uh, you know, he, he just checked off all the boxes. And he's a great heel. He knows how to get heat which is like a very important quality of wrestling that I think over, gets overlooked a lot of the time is understanding how to get heat, the right kind of heat and, and how to show ass. And, and, and Max had an uncanny quick ability to grasp that and execute it. And he's one of those guys that as he came into the system, uh, you could tell him something once and you wouldn't have to tell him twice. He would understand the light bulb goes off and he would make it, his, 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 he would take it and then make it his own. Um, and so it's like, Hey, don't do that. It's too much Gaga, you know, try to be a more serious heel, but also show ass. So it's a kind of a, you know, it's a tight rope to walk that. Um, cause if you want a guy to be a, a, a larger player in your system, you know, you can take, you can do some of the Gaga, you can do some of that stuff, but you have to show ass and do it at the right times. So you got to have real heat, got to have real steam on you. And Max got it. And he always asked the right questions or, you know, he asked any question and he, he wanted to learn. And, and he, he certainly had an appetite for, for the business and an understanding, a baseline understanding. Unlike very, I mean, like I just, I hadn't seen many that came in there that, that quick to get acclimated and, and very quick for just a guy that had never done TV. He knew where the cameras were instantly. 
uh, intuitively knew where to look for the uh, the hard camera, the ringside cameras. He knew that they would find him too. So just a really unique guy. Yeah, and one thing, you know, like you said, he's so young. I think he's 24 now. Definitely an old soul in the business, but also too in this. You know, we were watching him on uh, Rosie O'Donnell when he was like five years old singing opera. So the kid obviously was a natural right from the start. Um, but what I really enjoy is is he's, he's got a lot of great ideas too. And you know, I'm I'm a big collaborator. If I find somebody I connect with, because I'm very guarded too. Like if if it's somebody I don't, not that I don't respect, but I, I come from the the place that a lot of top guys quote unquote do I think my ideas are better than most so to get an idea in with me I really have to like it because I don't I'm at the point of my career where I don't have to settle or I don't have to be passive aggressive like if I don't like it I'll just say I don't like it with him he comes up with a lot of great stuff even which you saw with the dinner debonair or, or, or you haven't seen it yet but when we air this you'll have seen it the Vegas Vegas the, you know inner circle slays Vegas that we, that we did He's he's right up there with coming up with some of the ideas. And actually, the original idea for the song and dance routine was his. And the original idea to go to Vegas was his. And then I think of both those concepts, and then I kind of take it and expand upon it. So I like that. You know, he's he's got a lot of, of courage and confidence. And he's got a lot of, of, of great, you know, uh, uh, ideas and, and thoughts and contributions to what we're doing, which is always a pleasure. And you know this as a booker and as a story writer. It's hard when guys just go, what do you got for me this week? Um, well, here's what I got. It's better when you say, what do you want to do? And let's put it together you know, as a team. Yeah, take your idea and take it in a different direction that you hadn't thought of. You know, Those are kind of things I look for. And he's also very generous. You know, we put him in a faction with Alex Hammerstone, who's incredible, yeah. and uh, Richard Holiday, who's awesome. And they, they, they really meshed well, and he helped kind of create this chemistry amongst the three of them. Uh, and they became really good friends for real. And, you know, he just, he has a real high wrestling IQ, uh, and he has that appetite for wrestling. And, and he reminds me a little bit of, uh, Eddie Gilbert, a little bit of Candido and Buddy Rogers. And I once told him if territory still existed, if bookers were more of a thing today than they, they really aren't, it's like an endangered species. Mm -hmm. Um, but if there was such a role that he could be one day, he could be a really good booker. And I still believe that. Like, I think when his time comes and goes in the ring, he has the ability to be a real excellent booker. If he ever desired to do that, if the business changes and goes back in that direction. Uh, but he's, 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 it's funny. I'll tell you a story, but you'd say he's an old soul. At one point uh, we were doing some business with WWE in 2018 or we're going to, uh, we were fairly friendly, I guess you could say. And there was talk about MJF possibly doing a crossover thing for with them. We were we were taping at the time primarily out of Orlando, and they were at NXT, of course, down the road. So they started asking questions about him. And one of the things they asked was like, so the, he's what, 26, 28, 29? I'm like, no, dude, he's 21. They're like, what? <laughs> I was like, does, that, does he look that way or is it the experience? What is it? And I remember telling MJF that he's like, I don't know if I should take that as a compliment or an insult. I said, I don't know either. But, you know, he has such – I mean, he has certain qualities you just don't see in, in, in a lot of wrestling. A lot of wrestling, I think, is, is as JR would say, a lot of it's the, you know, is it, it, do you have the sizzle there or what? And, and he matches, he kind of blends a lot of those qualities. I mean, very much a throwback, but he doesn't say, hey, I'm a throwback. He just takes those positive attributes and incorporates it into a modern character that works. 
he's a lot like Cody too in that he's deceptively athletic. Like he doesn't work that way, but then he'll bust out, you know, like a like a moonsault or, or you know, a front flip landing on his feet type of thing, which is a, a, such a, a, a not important part, but it's such a part of new new school wrestlers that they're all very very athletic in comparison to the way things were even just ten years ago. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, he played he played sports in high school. I think he played football and stuff. So, I mean, he's he certainly has an athletic background. I, I don't know if his parents were at one point grooming to be in show business, but you certainly can see it. There's a video sure I, I once almost blackmailed him with where he starts singing. I don't know if he was in a barbershop quartet or something in high yeah. school, but he's got this whole Broadway thing he was singing in high school. So yeah. he's he's had that confidence. I mean, in high school, you think about how – you can do that stuff. The amount of confidence you have to have in high school, so people aren't just busting right. for it. Right. It's pretty. I mean, that said a lot about his confidence and what he was doing out there. And he knew he could be the class clown and be very entertaining. And he, he even what he really was. That's some good footage. I said one day, hold on to that. You're going to want to use that in an angle. <laughs> when you have a guy like M. Jeffrey, you mentioned Alex Hammerstone and, and Jacob Fatu, and is it? I'm not going to say hard, but obviously MLW, you have a lot of uh, a lot of television exposure. You've got a lot of steam behind you, but you also know that that there's you know the, the the big the big fish, shall we speak, like AEW or WWE. Do you know that that there's only a certain amount of time you'll be able to hold on to those guys, and are you cool with knowing that at some point, if they get over, you're going to have to let them go? Well, I think it's the biggest compliment in a weird way, where it's like if they if if you create a scenario where they come in at one level and you and and the talent get them to a certain level and they leave was tenfold the awareness, interest, momentum, and, and people, you know, offering six-figure contracts and having a bidding war with them. It's like, damn, mission accomplished. I mean, mm-hmm. I got what I got out of you. I know right. set end date, and the fans got their beginning and their middle, their end of their story arc. And that, to me, was always what I'm looking to accomplish. You know, when, for example, when Brian Pillman came in, he had had only 30 matches and really just kind of just, you know, not, you know, try and pick up dates, but really, he only had 30 matches. Now, a lot of people want to book him. I was crazy enough to do it. But then by the time he's left, he's now worked with Tommy Dreamer. He's been put in a blanket and, and bundled and given more from, from the system, but also from guys like Davey Boy Smith uh, Jr. and working with a lot of top talent like that, too. So he emerges out of that from 30 matches and not getting a lot of bookings to being very hot. And then the fans are going to have their beginning, their middle and the end. I mean, I think the first angle he did in the company was beating up Kevin Sullivan and getting color, which inadvertently brought out a SWAT team, which was crazy. But, uh, you know, I think it's important. And and for us too, it's like we're running a business. So it's like, you want to be able to pursue and develop and then hopefully sustain and, and keep some of your guys. And, and so, we're, you know, we're lucky and we had the good fortune of, uh, this year of ex, uh, signing new contracts for guys like Fatu and Hammerstone and Holiday and Selena De La Renta. So they're going to be with us for years to come. Uh, and so I think it's like any company. There's going to be guys that come. There's going to be guys that go. And I don't think that's a bad thing because there's going to be guys that come and go in every company. That if That's the natural kind of life of wrestling. If you And, and it wasn't fun when WWE just had everyone. And I remember being in WWE, like, man, I'd just love to shake this up, but this is what it is to have that kind of flow going and coming creates fresh matchups. It challenges you in terms of matchmaking and booking to try to shake things up. You know, you have something that's mm-hmm. working, but you, you're going to do it to death unless you know you got to shake things up. And so it's, I think it's just a balance. It really always is going to be. So 
So talk about uh, restarting the company and how long has it been since you ran shows? So our last show was crazy. It was in Mexico, of course, in Tijuana on March 13th. Conan and uh, AAA, we, we teamed up with them. They did a show. And that day, NBA had gone to shit. And mm-hmm. uh, they had shut things down. And we we're like, oh, God, I think this is our last show for a bit. We thought 30 days, 60 days. We had no idea it would be seven months. Um, but as a smaller company, you know, we were very concerned about how this could work and, and in terms of properly testing and going through the whole process and the lockdown. So we waited it out until late the summer when the, the NBA and Yale got these incredibly great rapid testing. I think we used the same testing AEW used. Um, and it's, you know, I think Pillman said he had taken the same test when he went through yeah. our protocols. We hired a COVID compliance officer, we went through this whole thing that as a wrestling promoter, you never think you're going to have to be thinking about a pandemic, what a COVID compliance officer is, all these protocols and stuff. But we knew that things were getting funky last February. When we ran the ECW arena. We had signs in English and in Spanish because a large chunk of our audience or our, our, our talent is from Mexico that said, you know, no handshaking, just, just, just screw the handshaking. Right. And we had Purell stations and stuff. And that was February 1st or 2nd. So we knew things were getting weird. I had no idea it was, no one I think knew, at least here in the States, how crazy it was going to be. But coming back, we, we taped in October and it was felt good. First of all, for, for me to not have to book for a few months and kind of recharge was great uh, to revert and, and kind of go back and do and, and shift the bandwidth of running a company now just doing deals. One of the biggest things that I, it's, a, it's like kind of like a compliment, kind of a frustrating thing when someone says, hey, uh, MLW man is awesome. It's the best kept secret. I'm like, great. Well, I don't want it to be a secret. Yeah, that's I want right. people to find out about this. I, I know promoters are watching. I want the fans to watch too. <laughs> so it's like, how do you do that? So we quickly, you know, try to expand our footprint. And so we signed a really great deal with the zone who are like, they call them the Netflix of sports. They're all over the world. They have 8 million subscribers uh, to their paid service. Uh, we we did a deal with Fubo Sports. You can watch us on Pluto TV through that, uh, and just expanded our global footprint. We're now in twenty plus countries and stuff. So we just wanted more eyeballs on us. Now we have over a hundred million screens, including all these different streaming ways to get us. And I kind of said, okay, you know, we we have this. Maybe we did a new deal with BN Sports. I always want to have the cable deal, but I really want us to double down on streaming. That's the future. And then frankly, it's where all the money is right now. There's so much money in streaming, whether it's you're doing sports, scripted, there are all these emerging platforms and verticals you want to get with. Uh, and they're taking meetings and they're more adventurous than your traditional cable who are just scared shitless about doing anything different. Right, right. Um, because it's, that's why you have like five CSI shows because, hey, it works. I'm not going to lose my job if I get this wrong. But if I take a risk, I might lose my job. And in this economy, oh my God. Whereas you have the people run these tech-driven companies in the streaming space, it's kind of like the Wild West. They're kind of a sense of adventure. It's a gold rush kind of feel. So they're more like, let's just go for it, man. That feels good. And they go on more instinct than kind of grinding through kind of all this analysis. Now, that's not every company, but most companies. So for us, that was, you know, a big part of the strategy. And so this all brought us to, the, you know, from restructuring and doing new deals with talent to expanding our, our footprint, getting more eyes on the product to kind of set the table for us, hopefully to emerge from this uh, hibernation and, and roaring. That was my goal is come out of this. More people know about us, have stability in our roster and, and get back to it and, and just try to have some semblance of normalcy during very unnormal times. Unnormal times, yeah. It's so interesting because you mentioned, you know, the best kept secret, but there's so much great wrestling now. It's, it's probably the best that it's ever been 
between all the different companies, Impact, MLW, New Japan. You know, I, almost, I always say, I'm not saying this in a bad way, but it's almost like if, a tr- if, if Ring of Honor falls in the forest, does anybody hear it? Like people don't even talk about Ring of Honor anymore. And that used to be the number three, you know, uh, number two even at some point in time kind of alternative. But now th- th- they've fallen so far down because of all these other companies. So I guess I, my question is for MLW, what's the end game for you? How do you expand that footprint and where do you want to live kind of in the pro wrestling world? Well, for us, it's really about we've always been kind of grounded as a as a sport or a combat sport. That kind of is how I defined it. So like on our new version of MLW, we have a fight clock. You know the time of the fights as they're happening. You'll see the clock run. Uh, we've always kind of grounded ourselves in that space. We don't have a creative team. We don't do scripted promos. So I want us to feel a little bit more very hyper-realistic. Thanks to our our network partners, we can say some stuff that uh, and do some stuff we typically wouldn't if we were on different uh, channels. So you kind of turn those things into positives. So we're really trying to differentiate ourselves by just being more of a sports league. Most of our channels and our affiliates around the world, they're sports networks and stuff. So we're just we're kind of leaning towards that, um, and and for us that's important is just to try to you got to distinguish yourself. You just can't say hey we're doing good matches. You have to kind right, of find right. your thing. Just like in the '90s, ECW, that's what they were trying to do: get edgy, get crazy, get provocative. Now today that would be considered super passive. You can't do that. So you got to find your way. You got to find your lane. And and I think the other thing that's important for the company so you don't uh, find yourself in a terrible position is you know. Having strategic relationships, whether that's abroad or back here in the states, you know, I think one of the interesting things about AEW is they, you know, hey, the the the, the what they say, the, the bridges are down. We're, we're open to having those conversations, right? And so, you know, I can tell you, we've we've had those conversations with AEW in the last thirty or sixty days. Tony Khan's been really great to work with. Uh, we'll see where it takes us, and I think then the talent wins, the fans win. Promotions can find this kind of interesting shared talent content ecosystem thing that's very unique. And the business, because of that, I think, is because of this disruption that's happened with all this competition, uh, I think a lot of positives come out of it like this. You just got to think differently. And we, we really embrace that. Just kind of starting to wind down here. Who are uh, who are some of the, your, your, your bigger names that uh, obviously we mentioned Hammerstone, you mentioned David Boy Smith, Jacob Fatu, but like I said, you've got a pretty expansive roster. Yeah, so Leo Rush is debuting for us. No, he's an incredibly talented guy yes. and got to know him through 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 Wale. And uh, so he's going to have a great presence in the company. We have a great talent in Myron Reed, who's about 22, 23, great middleweight for us. And Jordan Oliver as well. They, they have this group called Injustice. Jacob Fatu and the whole Contra units have been a fun faction for us. Uh, and, and, and guys like ACH have come in. They're doing some really good stuff. And we're going to kick things off with the Opera Cup, which Stu Hart won in 1948. What's it called? The, the Opera o- Cup. Opera Cup. There's no singing, I promise. But <laughs> what it, it started in the old days, around, you know, turn of the century, wrestling was held primarily in these like opera houses because they were like the perfect setup for wrestling. And so they had this tournament, and New York Times has articles on it. It's fascinating. And they would have the champion of Poland come in, and they do these incredible multi-day tournaments, kind of like what they used to do in Germany. Right. And so – Harry Davy Boy Smith Jr. donated the 1915 cup, which his father had won in 48. And so we, we, he donated it and he said, take this forward. And this now is an annual event for us. We're going to have our second one on TV starting uh, this coming Wednesday. 
And Davies won the first one when we brought it back after set was it 71, 72 years. <laughs> yeah, his grandfather held it. Yeah. And so, and so now it's up for grabs in year two. Uh, and it's a great tradition. And it's, you know, again, it's trying to distinguish ourselves and, and be uh, true to what we are and yet different. And I thought that the, the cup last year was a lot of fun. We had fans like wanting to do meet and grease just with the cup. Forget the wrestlers. We just want to be with this cool <laughs> cup. But we actually got it restored by the guys out west that did the Stanley Cup restoration. So, That's you know. Cool. It was really cool, and like it's terror. It's terrifying when you bring that into a wrestling environment every year. I'm like, oh my god, someone's I can give responsibility to one person. If you lose this thing, you're gonna have to deal with Davey. Yeah. And he's not gonna be happy because he dare he, he donated this family heirloom, so you're gonna have to deal with him. But it's it's a pretty cool concept, and we'll build out the rest of the year around the Opera Cup, uh, and we'll have some hooks and some twists and some newcomers that people don't know are coming uh, coming in. So it's an exciting time, and we're just trying to just you know come back with a really big roster. We have had a, we have our biggest roster to date. It's like, I think twice the size of the last roster. We have LA park, La Parca and his mm-hmm. sons. Now uh, the Von Erics who are amazing. And along with their father, Kevin. And what's cool is they'll film stuff out in Hawaii. We live out on uh, one of the islands <laughs> and it's some of the best footage you'll ever find. I can't pay for a better location. Yeah, no right. footage. And you know, Kevin's out there smoking a cigar, talking about the old days of the smoke-filled arenas with his sons, and they're awesome. And that's the other thing. We're bringing back – I know Vince isn't a fan, but I'm bringing back the smoke-filled arena. So when you see our show, it'll have more of an atmospheric feel. That's great. It'll have this very smoky, hazy feeling because if you can't have fans there, you have to create something to try to create an atmosphere. And we figure, right. let's, let's, let's bring that back. So that, that's what we've done. Yeah, that was one of the weirdest things. I mean, we have limited fans now, but it was you know wrestling is so built around the reactions and even how you call your matches and how you do your promos. And then to have that completely taken away, a lot of people are like, that must have been hard for the young guys. I'm like, no, young guys are a lot closer to working in front of 100 people than me. It was hard for me, the young guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so weird too because I'm like, I had to tell the guys like, stop looking for the reaction. Just, yeah, you know, you got to find a new way to like even in between them when you like guys down, you're getting heat. Like, what are you doing? You're usually milking a crowd or something. You don't have that. So I was like, you just got to talk shit to the guy and start yeah. laying it in on him. And that's the other thing I said. There's no crowd, so you got to lay your stuff in mm-hmm. because if you don't, it's going to look really bad. And there, it's already kind of an alienating thing when you're not laying in your stuff and it just looks lame. Oh my god, this it's going to die. And yeah. then, you know, we had a few matches where the guys were kind of like they were like still stuck in that mode. I was like, no, let's do that. Let's run that back. Let's do that over because, you know, for it's going to bury you. They're not going to think that's about right. it. They're going to think about you, man. So you got it. You know, it's, it's hard. And the thing that's, you know, unlike any, any other trade or craft wrestlers can adapt and, right. and evolve. And, and, and you, every show is different. Every crowd's different and you have to be ready for it. And this is the ultimate test, right? How do you stay entertaining? How do you get yourself over without the crowd, which is one of the biggest members of your roster. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, last question for you. You mentioned Wale, and I know you were one of the uh, uh, creators of Wale Mania. I went to one of them one year. It was pretty crazy, awesome, fun. Uh, tell us some stories about that. Well, that was, were you there the year that JR and Conan had maybe too good of a time, and JR got very sleepy on stage? I no, think Conan I may have passed out <laughs> on the red carpet. <laughs> That was Dallas, I think. I was like, wow, you know this is a party when Conan passed. Yeah, out. That's, that's right. right. 
<laughs> battle tested. I said, wow. Right. Um, and then there was the one in San Jose and then Orlando, maybe. I was at Orlando. Oh my God. That one was so hot backstage. I remember yeah. being stuck in a very small hallway with Mark Henry and someone else. I was like, oh my God, I need air. Um, <laughs> it was great experience. That was also the, the Wally Mania where Mysterio was there and they had a, the, the DJ booth was on the second level looking over the crowd and you had the, the the, the, the floor underneath it where, where Wally was performing. But Ray wanted to overlook and just kind of check it out, but he was too small to see over the DJ booth and all the <laughs> shit and all the gear. So uh, old Shad Gaspard takes him up like he's a child on his shoulders. <laughs> and you see Ray's like, this is great. Hey, everyone. And he just sta- he stayed there for, I swear, like 30 minutes just watching the show from above. Um, it really, Wally Mania is really – like especially the green room and the VIP area is like the cantina from Star Wars. Right. You see all these really interesting, weird characters. Some people you see NBA guys, rappers. You see wrestlers. You see all types of guys back there, like just hanging out, chilling. You know, yeah. uh, and it's funny. Jr. from day one became like a real kind of part of it. Yeah, I remember I brought him to the first one, and he just kept showing up for them. And I was like, it's great. We would push his Jr. barbecue sauce and it's awesome sauce. Uh, but it's, it's been a fun time and it's, it's, it's one of those rare times where everyone, every company that's loud until this podcast, maybe allowed their guys to come out to the show. And it was fun. It was, it was, it felt like, you know, there's times when wrestling feels a little uncool. It always felt like a really cool moment when Wally mania happened. Yeah, man. It's one of those things like, hopefully, um, hopefully it, it, it will be able to happen this year. Um, who knows, but. You know, fingers, fingers crossed, crossed, right? Especially now they're talking about vaccines and all that sort of stuff. But it, like, like, like we said, it's been a weird year, but I'm glad that that you guys are back. And uh, there's nowhere to go but up from here for sure. But dude, great, great talking to you again, though, for sure. No, thank you, and everyone, check us out every Wednesday night, 7 p.m. and 10 p.m. on Fubo Sports, on YouTube, Pluto TV, and on Saturdays nationwide cable, satellite, U.S. and Canada on BN Sports, MLW Fusion, Major League Wrestling mlw.com thank you so much for having me on yeah man we'll talk to you again soon come up with some more stories about me <laughs> i'm working on it i'm working on it thanks court good talking to you buddy Bye. thanks man bye